we are uh, in a series of lessons called Discovering the Mission of God. And that was kind of what Stacy was talking about a few moments ago. If you'd like to be a part of that, please take advantage of World Bible School. Uh, I had a dear friend whose funeral I did uh, just a few months ago, who during the latter part of his life studied with, I think, somewhere around 2,500 people through World Bible School. And how many he led to Christ, only God knows. But what a wonderful opportunity that is to uh, just, you know, share the gospel with people in a very easy, casual way. Uh, if you're a guest today, we're always honored to have you. Jen and I are going to be back in the back corner. Back here, as you go out to the right, we'll be there greeting today. And if you're a guest... Uh, so many people file out of here as soon as church is over, heading toward classes or heading toward home, and we have a hard time greeting everyone. If you're a guest, come by and say, hey, we're guests today, and let us meet you. We would love to get to know you. We, in this series called Discovering the Mission of God, began back the first of the year looking at God working through Israel. We started in Genesis, we went from the creation of man in God's image to the fall of man and, and tainting of that image. We looked at how sin spread, how God chose Abraham. Uh, we then looked at how God worked through Moses in order to deliver his people and to bring them out to Mount Sinai. And last week, we looked at God as he entered into a covenant with Israel in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 19, there at Mount Sinai, God calls Israel to do two things. Number one is to be a kingdom of priests. Number two is to be a holy nation. And one of the things last week we did was to go to the book of Peter and look at the fact that Peter calls us today, the Israel of God, the exact same thing. We are a royal priesthood and we are a holy nation. One of the things that's so important as you think about how God worked through the Old Testament is to realize that what God did in the Old Testament, he's still doing today. We are a part of the exact same mission and in many ways reflect the exact same thing that God called Israel to be. In fact, this morning as we continue this study, you'll notice as I go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, and look at how that Jesus basically calls us to be the same thing that God called ancient Israel to be. Now, when God called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he said, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. You see, the land of promise was by God's choosing. God knew exactly where he wanted to plant his people. And if you look at a map, it is astonishing what God did. You'll notice this is a map of the Middle East. And what's unique about it, it is that part of the world where you have three continents coming together. To the bottom of your screen, you see the African continent. To the left, you see the European continent. To the right, you see the Asian continent. And all of them come together in one little spot that we'll look at here in a moment. Now, what's interesting is that you see up here those kingdoms of the ancient world. Persia, Babylon, Assyria, the Hittite kingdom, which is in modern-day Turkey. You had the Greeks, which, by the way, is still Greece. You had the Egyptians, which is still Egypt today. And you had, of course, the Roman Empire that today we would call the nation of Italy. 
But what's fascinating is where God planted Israel. Notice the little star of David as it appears almost right smack dab in the middle of the screen. The crossroads of all the ancient world. Whether you were coming up out of Africa, you went through Israel. Whether you were coming from Asia to go to Africa, you came through Israel. Whether you were coming from the Mediterranean, you would oftentimes pass through Israel. The main roads passed through Israel of the ancient world. And and Jewish rabbis used to say that God placed Israel at the navel of the world. And in so many ways, that's true. Look at what God said in Ezekiel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. And of course, if you just pause for a moment and ask why, why would God place his people right in the center of the ancient world? And the answer, of course, is that because God wanted Israel to be a light to those nations. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as we continue to look at the, at the work of Israel in fulfilling the mission of God. We're going to see how that God planted her right where he wanted her to be and gave her an incredible task. Now, it's no different than our task. You turn over to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said the exact same thing, you know, 1,500 years later. You're the light of the world, talking about us. Just as Israel had been called to be a light of the world, we're called to be a light of the world. And of course, he goes on to talk about the fact that a town that is built on a hill, you can't hide it. And then the one that I like even better is, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. That makes no sense at all. I mean, you light a lamp so that it gives light. And God has lit a lamp in us. Not for us to hide from the world, but for us to shine into the world. And so you see in Deuteronomy chapter 4, as God begins to speak, and I love this. Moses is the one who's speaking here. Moses is right on the edge of the land of promise. He knows he can't come in because of his own sin in his life. And so he calls Israel together, and he goes back through the law of Moses, his law, the law God had given him, one more time. The word Deuteronomy literally means the second giving of the law, taken from the Septuagint, from the Greek. The second giving of the law. And so Moses summarizes everything that had happened from the earliest chapters of Exodus until now he's standing at the Jordan River, you know, ready for the Israelites to go across, knowing he's about to die. And notice what Moses says. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. Then he tells them why. Notice what he says. So that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Jesus would say the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He would get to the end and give us that beautiful little two-part parable of where he said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice... Who's careful to observe him? What is he like? And y'all remember the song. 
You know, I remember as a kid sitting there, whether it was in Pew Packers on Sunday night or vacation Bible school, you know, during the summertime. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. You know, the rains came tumbling down. The floods came up. And the wise man's house stood firm. And then, of course, as a kid, you loved the second part. Because you get to the end of it, and you'd say, and the foolish man's house went, smash! You know, everybody slapped their hands together. Why? Because here were people who were not careful to do what God was calling them to do. And so whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the principle is exactly the same. But John read this a few moments ago, and I love why God said, or why Moses said, this is so important. Notice, observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. Now, is it going to bless their lives? Of course it's going to bless their lives. But God's called them for another purpose, and that is to be this light, to demonstrate to the world who their God is. And notice, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And so God wanted them so desperately to shine to the world. And then look again at what Jesus says to us in the same way, not referring back to Deuteronomy, but to the fact that he said we're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Challenging? Always. Because you see, if we're not careful, what we begin to think is that our good deeds are really our good deeds. Our light is our light. And it's not God's deeds and God's light. You see, we need to remember that we're not the sun. S-U-N or S-O-N. We're more like the moon. We simply reflect the sun. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so there's always this sense of humility that we have to have. And yet at the same time, with that humility comes this sense of responsibility that we have to say to the world, there's a better way of living. If you'll look at us, maybe you'll... See an example of it. Perfect example? Perfect examples don't exist. Les Chapman is not a perfect example by far of a preacher. Let me promise you that. There's many far better preachers out there in the world than I am. And, and you know, the best I can do is just do what God has given me the abilities to do. And by the way, we don't have perfect elders. We, we, don't, ha- we don't have perfect deacons. We, we do have a perfect worship leader, but that's the only example I know of. Thanks, Blake. Appreciate that very much. You know, I, I tell Blake all the time, I said, man, of all the people I've ever worked with, brother, you're fantastic. And he is, and we're so grateful to have him. But seriously, none of us are perfect, you know. And, and, and we have to realize that sometimes. Moses said that there's two things that stand out about Israel and our God. And I love what he says here. He says, first of all, what, the other, uh, what other nations, or what other nations, excuse me, is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us. One of the things that makes Christianity and, and, and Israel before Christianity so amazing is God's desire to be close to his people. I mean, God said, I want you to build a tabernacle. And that tabernacle is to be right in the middle of the community with the 12 tribes camped around it. And my presence is going to be there inside that tabernacle above the Ark of the Covenant, you know, in between the, the cherubim. That's where I will dwell. 
so that I can be close to my people. And this intimacy that God wants with us is absolutely astonishing. I think sometimes we, like ancient Israel, like Islam, like many other religious groups, is as if God's down there and we need to stay way back here. You know, when Israel went to the mountain and God spoke from the mountain, people were scared. God didn't want them to be scared. He wanted them to draw close, but they fell back in fear, which is what so many people do. Get to the New Testament and Jesus trying to explain the intimate relationship God wants with us. He says, let me tell you how to pray. And the problem we have is we were taught the Lord's Prayer ever since we were kids. We don't realize how revolutionary it was. You see, ancient Jews didn't call God Father. Now, they called God Father of the Jewish nation. But the concept of referring to God as your personal father was just simply not in the vocabulary of ancient Israel, first century Israel. And so when Jesus came along and he says, here's the way you pray, our Father, that that literally blew their minds. And then he went so far as to say, it's not just our Father, but it's Abba Father. And let me just tell you that even today, I struggle to be that intimate with God. That, that fear that Israel had, I think a bit of it still lingers in me. Because you've got to realize what Abba means. Abba literally, I, a couple of weeks ago, June and I were up in Ohio. We were with our grandkids, and, and, and one of them just turned five. The other one is two, heading toward three. And one of the things I love to watch is when they're around my son Kyle, and they, they call him Dada. Dada. Every language has its simple phrases for mom and dad. And for ancient Israel, it was Abba. Ima, for mother. And, and, and here's God saying, can I, or here's Jesus saying, can I tell you how close I want to be to you? I want to be as close as a three-year-old is to his dada. I mean, that's what God calls us to. And again, I struggle with that very concept myself to call God that. And yet that's the closeness that we see God wanting us to have. And then he goes even further than that, in that when Jesus is fixing to go back to heaven, he says, listen, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to ask the Father to send you another advocate, the Spirit of truth, he calls him. And he says, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you. And then Jesus says one of the most astonishing things in all the Gospels. And he will be in you. The awareness of the presence of the Spirit of God. It's the most difficult thing I've ever had. I mean, I believe that the Spirit lives in me. But being aware of the Spirit's presence continually is still one of the most difficult things I've ever tried to do. To be aware of the fact that not only does he dwell in me, but he's working through me in order to accomplish what God wants me to accomplish. And for me to be aware of that so that every day, whether walking close to him or walking far away, I'm allowing the Spirit to be present in my life to try and steer me the right direction. Intimacy with God. And then he says, and what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws? 
One of the things I love about the Old Testament, and, and I think so oftentimes we simply look at, especially the first five books, Matthew, excuse me, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I mean, you know, you start your Bible reading at the first of the year, and if you're using a one-year Bible, you do good until you get to the middle way of Exodus. And then you come to the dimensions of the tabernacle, and you go, really? And then, of course, as soon as you get out of Exodus, you go into Leviticus. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but boy, I tell you, Leviticus is a tough book. You know, growing up in Mississippi, we renamed it instead of Leviticus. We called Leave It to Cuss. Let him read it. Yeah. Man, that's a tough book. And it's spelled the same, just pronounced a little bit different based on the syllables there. But if you pause, if you take it seriously, if you get into the text, and you look especially the book of Deuteronomy, if you look at the ancient history of the world, and then you look at what God called Israel to do, you step back and you go, that's incredible. Because it was a righteous law. It was a law that gave women justice. Who said, men, you just can't treat women any way you want to. They protected children. They didn't say, if you got a girl when you wanted a boy, just throw her away. They even said to those who had slaves, you better be careful how you treat those who are slaves because you used to be slaves in Egypt. I mean, everything throughout the Old Testament covenant is a law that literally stood so starkly different from the ancient world. That God said that if you'll just live it out, the people will see it and say, wow. Which, by the way, is no different than us. Jesus, when asked of the 613 laws, which is the greatest, he said, let me tell you the greatest. The greatest is to love the Lord your God. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then look at the last line, verse 40 here. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It was Jesus' way of saying, if you want to focus, then don't focus on 613, focus on two of them. And the rest of them will fall in line. And let, can, can we just admit that loving God with all of our heart and our, and our soul and our mind is absolutely amazingly difficult? Because Satan's constantly trying to draw that, our attention away from God every day of our lives? And then... Having loved God to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I mean, those are challenges that, that God says, if you'll just focus on these, you'll understand what righteousness is actually all about. And so God, as he continues to work through that chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, he says, now let me give you two warnings. And these warnings are such important warnings. He says, notice the first thing. Only be careful and watch yourself closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen and let them fade from your heart as long as you live. You've got to remember. Don't let it fade from your heart. I see there's several who have worn red today. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. And, and, and I hope you have. If, if you've got someone that you love dearly, I hope you have a great Valentine's Day. And, and to not let the memories of love fade from your heart I still remember the first time I asked June if I could kiss her we had been dating for about two years and <laughs> it wasn't that long but we had been dating for several weeks and uh, I, was, I was too afraid to ask her 
And so finally I got enough courage. I still remember it. I, I walked her to the door of the house and as she was about to go in, I said, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. I said, can I kiss you? And her response is, what took you so long? And so <laughs> I still remember it well. Uh, I don't know if June does, but I do. God says, what about you? Do you remember your love for me? You go over and, and he says in Deuteronomy 16, he says, by the way, three times a year I want you to remember. You, you, you come during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a reminder of the Exodus. You come during the, uh, uh, what's called the Feast of Weeks, which in New Testament was called Pentecost, a celebration of the giving of the law here uh, in Exodus. You go in the fall and you celebrate the festival of tabernacles or tents to remember when Israel wandered in the wilderness. God was constantly saying to Israel, you need to remember. You need to remember. And you think about us and what we did a few moments ago. We remembered. We gathered around a table and we ate bread and we drank the fruit of the vine. And, and when people say to me, Leslie, why do you do that every Sunday? Uh, I, I don't simply go back and quote Acts 27. I know that the example is found there. But I think the theology is more than just an example. The theology is that today is the Lord's day. I mean, as I was coming in this morning, the sun was rising above the horizon and, and we're reminded that it was on a morning just like that 2,000 years ago that Jesus came out of the grave. It's the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection, the day of remembrance. Peter, right before he died, he would write his last letter. And all the way through chapter 1, I want you to notice, so I will always remind you, even though you know them, you're established in them, I think it's right to refresh your memory. And you go on down to verse 15, and I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you'll always be able to remember these things. I sometimes think that Peter and June had something in common. Because this is what June says to me all the time. I want to remind you, you better refresh your memory. By the way, don't forget. You know, June, by the way, I, I love her so much because June is a list person. I, I don't know how many of you are list people. You know, you don't want to forget, so you write everything on a list. Here's what you're supposed to do. And I'm not a list person. And so June makes a list for me. And so she gives me a list. And then when she comes home, she said, did you get everything done on the list? I said, well, I lost the list. <laughs> don't remember where I put it. And by the way, I'm being very honest about that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that's very forgetful. Here's Peter saying we need to remember. Look at what Jesus said to the Ephesians. Remember then from where you've fallen. Remember your first love. And go back and do again what you did at first. So we remember. But then the second thing, and it's the second thing that I think is so absolutely important, is that we've got to teach that to our children. It's not that we remember, but we pass it to the next generation. And I love what Moses says. And it's not just to their children, but it's to their children, your grandchildren. You need to make sure not just the next generation, but the generation after that remembers what God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. You know, you turn over to Malachi, and in Malachi 2, you have... Malachi bemoaning the fact that, that Israel had gotten so lax on marriage. They were divorcing. Men would just put away their wives for any and every reason. And Malachi steps in and says, No, has he not made you and your wife one? You belong to him, body and spirit. 
And what doth he seek from su- does he seek from such a union? Look at what he says. This is from the voice. I love his translation. Godly offspring, godly children. I mean, that's what God's looking. Not just that we live godly lives, but that we bring up children that are godly and grandchildren that are godly. And so he says over in chapter 6, right after you have the giving of the Ten Commandments the second time, in chapter 5, you have the Shema in the opening verses of chapter 6. And then after the Shema and the command to love God with all of our heart, he says, now you need to impress them on your kids. And I love that phrase there, impress them on your children. Other translation says, teach, repeat, recite, tell, rehearse. And I love Eugene Peterson's. Get them inside of you and then get them inside your children. And boy, how true that is. Now, let me remind all of us, and we already know this, what you value will be evident by the time and commitment you make to it. I don't know how many times I hear people say, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. Y'all, we have time for that which is important to us. I promise you, in the morning, or sometimes tomorrow, If I don't wish June a happy Valentine's Day, if I don't show her through a gift or two of happy Valentine's Day, June's going to want to know, you didn't have time? Uh, Yeah, I did. I still remember many years ago at another church, uh, we had Administrative Assistance Day. I forgot it. It was a Wednesday. Wednesday night bulletin, guess what it said? preacher forgot administrative assistance day for everybody to see I didn't even know it until I got up to read the announcements and I'm like ooh you see my administrative assistance made sure I didn't forget it the next year I mean we need to be people who demonstrate by the fact that we've got time to do that which is really important and of course don't forget the grandchildren Proverbs 22 dedicate your children the old King James version bring them up in the way they should go And then notice, and the values they've learned from you will be with them for their life. And now I want to say something that that comes from years of doing ministry in the church. Parents, listen to me. Please listen to me. Ministers, youth ministers, churches, children's ministers, even Bible school teachers. All of those who work, especially with our kids and our teenagers. We cannot fill the role God created for those of you who are parents. We can't do it. I was a youth minister for probably close to 12 years early in my ministry. And I used to tell parents all the time, I cannot in the three to four to five hours I spend with your kids every week counteract everything the world's throwing at them. I cannot do it. And I oftentimes hear people say, well, you know what? I had my kids at every church function, every worship service. They were active in the youth group. Yes, but what did you do at home? You see, the battle's not won here in the building. The battle's won won at your kitchen table. It's in the front seat of your car. It's it's before you go to bed at night. Parents, that's where you win the battle to impress upon your kids. Notice, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Now, do we need help? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm appreciative of Bible school teachers and youth ministers and children's ministers and all of those that are involved in educating our kids. But at the end of the day, whether or not my kids had the love of God impressed in their hearts is going to come back on me in June. It's that simple. So we need to take it so seriously. 
Moses took it so seriously as he said, listen, you tie those, lie, those uh, laws as symbols on your hands. You bind them on your foreheads. You write them on the door frames of your house, on your gates. And all you have to do is travel to Israel today. And you see Jews still doing that. You see boys like this. That little box on his head, it's got scripture in it. You see his left arm, that's got scripture bound to it. You see this mezuzah here? Every building you enter in Israel will have, right over on the edge of the door, they'll have a mezuzah. And inside the mezuzah is the law of God. And it's simply their way of saying, we must never forget the law that God has made with us through Moses. How much less for those of us who have been made children of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then, as you get to the end of this section, One of the things that Moses says is, now listen, let me warn you of one last thing. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourself again very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourself an idol. Satan's going to come at all of us with something that he's going to attempt to make preeminently above God in our lives. And, and for many people, it's money. For some people, it's power. For others, it's pleasure. For some, it's good things. But when you take that which is good and you place it above that which is supremely good, something is tragically wrong. And so we have to realize that we have to be careful. Nothing can represent nor replace God in our lives. We can't allow that to happen. The way Jesus would put it in Matthew 6.33, this is out of the Passion Translation. So above all, constantly seek God's kingdom and His righteousness. Place that first and foremost in your life. It's about the reign and rule of God over your life. And he says, if you'll work on that, God will take care of the rest. So John, when you get to the end of his little epistle of 1 John I've always wondered what in the world or why does he do this you know John is the apostle of love and, and you go through his gospels full of love John 3.16 for God so loved the world you turn over to 1 John and, and John deals with love there love of brethren in fact he says if you don't love your brother who you have seen how can you love God who you haven't seen you know you, you can't do it And then, of course, that beautiful text, 1 John 4, verse 8. God is love. Three words that are the most significant words in all of Scripture. God is love. And yet, when he gets to the end of it, he writes one of the most amazing things. He says, you've got to be careful who you love. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so end the sermon today a very simple way and that is who do you love do you love God are you trying to keep that first commandment and then that second commandment that just kind of really brings all the commandments together under their umbrella I mean are you willing to say God not only am I going to impress it on my heart I'm going to impress it on the heart of my kids if I could say anything to our young parents let's redouble our efforts renew our efforts to try and say to our kids listen you got to believe this with everything that you got now, it won't all depend on you. You know, I, when people ask me about my boys, you know, how did you and June do it? We did it with a lot of help. 
And I mean a lot of help. Sunday school teachers, youth ministers. They, they both went to Good Pasture. And, and, I, and I tell people, you know, you go to Good Pasture, you know, a Bible class is just like biology or chemistry or math or English. It's just another class. But the thing I love about education is, is that, at least for some of us, we learn it through osmosis. I mean, we just hear it over and over again. It just kind of sinks in. I, both, both my boys at times in their lives had people ask them, when did you learn that? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, I do. It just kind of dripped in one drop at a time. You know, you just keep throwing it at them, and eventually it's going to sink in. We'll commit ourselves to doing everything in our power to impress it on our kids and impress it on our own hearts. We will be the people God's called us to be. If you're not walking that journey right now, what are you waiting for? It's time to give your life to Jesus. It's time to put your faith in him. Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized, you begin with this beautiful act called baptism, which is an act of commitment. It's an act of first love for God. I don't know of a better day than the day before Valentine's Day to give your heart to Jesus. And if you need to do that, come right now together we stand and sing.